Hello and welcome to Pod Rocket. I'm Noel and rejoining us today is Mark Erickson. Mark's a senior front-end engineer at Replay, a Redux maintainer, creator of Redux Toolkit, and he's here to talk about modern Redux and the Redux Toolkit at large. Welcome back to the podcast, Mark. Thanks. Glad to be here. Before we kind of jump in and start talking about Redux and what's going on, can you give us your background in brief, maybe for users that didn't get the last episode or it's been a while for them, um, and kind of what you're doing at Replay and just how maintaining Redux is going overall? Sure. So I'm a senior front-end engineer at Replay. I've been there for just over one year, and we are building a time-traveling debugger for JavaScript applications. I've spent a lot of my career debugging and trying to investigate problems. Yes, I'm biased because I work there, but I honestly wish I'd had this tool much earlier in my career. Being able to make a recording of a bug and then go in and jump to any point in time and add print statements to any random line of code and see how many times that code executed is just so amazingly helpful for solving problems. And there's even been a couple Redux-related bugs where, you know, kind of like wearing my Redux maintainer hat, I was able to make some recordings and go and debug them with Replay. And I honestly don't think I could have figured them out any other way. So I am incredibly excited about the tool that we're building. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so you mentioned your Replay work there. Tell us about how you got into that space and what you're spending your time on there. Yeah, so I'd spent my entire career, about 14 years, at a large government contractor prior to that and was just ready to do something new. Announced at the start of last year, I was open and available and looking for new opportunities. I had a whole bunch of companies contact me, went through the job search process for the first time ever. And admittedly, my job search process was probably a little bit different than most other people because companies were contacting me. Was your Redux work, was your work on a large open source visible project? Do you think that led to having companies reaching out to you? Oh yeah, like I have established an online reputation as the Redux guy, as someone who usually knows what he's talking about and for generally being helpful. And none of those would be true if I had never gotten involved with Redux in the first place. I do this because I want to support the community of Redux users. No, totally. I'm super happy you're uh, joining us again to, to talk about what's going on with Redux and what's coming up in the future. I guess to maybe add some context for users who like maybe aren't super familiar, uh, they're not like React users or they haven't used modern Redux in a while. Can you kind of tell us like what modern Redux is? Maybe give us like a brief overview of RTK and just some of those slightly newer features that people might not be using currently? Sure. So Redux came out in 2015, created by Dan Abramov and Andrew Clark, and became very, very popular over the next couple of years. Everyone began to assume that if you were building a React app, you had to be using Redux to actually manage the state on the client side. Mm. And Dan was only involved with Redux for one year. And then he handed off the maintainership to myself and Tim Dorr. Every technology goes through the whole like S-curve adoption thing. Here's this new thing. It's shiny. Let's try it out. A bunch of people jump on it. They build things with it. And then they find out all the cons or the trade-offs later on over time. And so like Redux was put in a lot of applications that never needed it in the first place. Redux was used in a lot of ways that it shouldn't have been. For example, there was a fairly popular library for managing your form input state with Redux. And its creator, Eric Rasmussen, has since disavowed that and said, no, this was a bad idea. Don't do that. <laughs> and the ecosystem has changed. And we've switched over from thinking about client-side state management 
to more about like server side data fetching and caching as the big problem that we really want to solve. And so the early Redux patterns were very verbose and there were good reasons for those, but it also meant you had to write a lot of extra code to do even relatively straightforward tasks. And there was basically no functionality built in. Redux was a very low level of primitive. And so it was up to you to build all the actual functionality on top of that. Mm. And so by, you know, 27, 2018, people were tweeting you know, about how much they hate Redux and, you know, other libraries so much easier to use. And I switched over to fetching my data with Apollo or React Query, and I deleted you know, five to 10,000 lines of Redux code. And that's actually a very fair assessment because, especially for data fetching, you would have had to have built all that functionality yourself. Mm-hmm. And so if you switch to using a purpose-built library for that use case, then it probably is going to be a lot shorter. But it's also true that a lot of the verbosity around Redux was not necessary. In in some of my talks and articles, I've used the phrases inherent versus incidental complexity. So Redux was not designed to be the shortest way to write code for updating and managing state it deliberately adds a level of indirection. Having this idea of having to dispatch an action and keep your reducer logic separate is always going to be more code than just saying state.value equals one, two, three. That's intentional. That is part of Redux's design. And if you take that away, it's not Redux anymore. But then you have to think about what is the purpose of why we do that? By adding that level of indirection, it gives us a number of benefits. Number one, like all the update logic is consistently in one place architecturally. If I open up a Redux code base, the first thing I do is go to look at the reducer functions because those tell me what state is in the app, how is it being updated, what are the actions, what's the name of the things that happen in the app conceptually. And that gives me a very consistent pattern to look at and understand what's going on. It also enables the Redux dev tools, being able to see a list of things that happened in the app over time, see the payloads of each action, see the diff in the state, see the final state, and adding that separation makes that possible. So it's trade-offs. You add the layer of indirection, you gain the benefits of predictable architecture and being able to see things. But beyond that, the, like I said, the early patterns were very verbose. You had to write all these action type constants and action creator functions. And the common pattern was to split your logic across like constants slash to do's.js and right. reducers slash to do's.js and action slash to do's.js. And that wasn't required, but it was, okay, fine. It was in our docs and most people did that. And so we came up with Redux Toolkit as a way to write the same Redux functionality, but with way less code. So we basically looked at what are all the problems people are trying to solve in Redux applications, and how can we provide APIs that make each of those tasks simpler to do? So we put out Redux Toolkit 1.0 in October 2019. I redid our tutorials in 2020 to teach that as the default standard way to write Redux code. And it's been a huge success. And RTK includes a dependency on the Redux core. So every RTK download is a download of Redux. 
but we routinely get people telling us how much they enjoy working with Redux Toolkit, even if they like hated writing old school Redux. Or you know, I, I see threads on Reddit with people asking which state management library should I choose or Redux versus other library of the week. And people are popping in and saying, I really enjoy Redux Toolkit and you should use it without me having to jump in and prompt them about it. It solved the boilerplate problem. It solved a lot of the common bugs that used to pop up. And it has basically succeeded in the goals that we set out for ahead of time. Nice. I have like one technical function that's going to expose my like infamiliarity with old Redux a little bit here, but I, I used Vue a lot more in the past few years uh, for side projects and stuff where I was using Vuex as a state manager. And they had these map functions that you could use to inject, you know, like your mutators and your getters and all these things into your Vue components. Does React have something akin to that, like that the toolkit replaces, or was that never really a paradigm in React at all? With Redux, there's two and a half or three separate pieces, depending on how you're slicing it. So you've got your actual Redux logic, creating the store, defining the reducers and the actions. That code is UI agnostic. Redux itself knows nothing about your UI. You can use the exact same Redux store with React, with Vue, Angular, Vanilla.js, jQuery, in a node backend, wherever it's just plain JavaScript. But we do assume that the vast majority of our users are using Redux with React as the UI. And so there is a specific React Redux library that provides the bindings that allow your React components to interact with a Redux store by reading state values, re-rendering with those change, and dispatching actions. React Redux is entirely dependent of the logic layer you can use React Redux with the old school way of writing Redux code. You can use it with modern Redux toolkit code. The UI part doesn't care because it's all still Redux either way. Gotcha. Having said that, React Redux itself also underwent a usage and API shift in 2019. What we'd always had from the beginning was an API called Connect, which used a React pattern called Higher Order Components. So the idea is you write what was typically referred to as like a presentational component, some component that just gets data and callbacks as props. It knows nothing about Redux, everything gets passed in. And then you define a couple parameters for connect called map state to props and map dispatch to props. And those allow you to extract data from the Redux store and pass it in as props to the React component and provide functions that dispatch actions when they're called and pass those in as props. And higher order components were a very standard React pattern for many years, but in late 2018, the React team introduced hooks. And so every library began figuring out, okay, how can we provide our functionality with React hooks in some way? And so in the first half of 2019, we rewrote the internals of Connect to be built using hooks. So same public API, different internals. And then we figured out what is our new public hooks-based API going to look like. And so we came up with a couple of hooks called Use Selector and Use Dispatch. And Use Selector is just grab this data from the store, re-render when it changes. Use Dispatch is literally just return store.dispatch. And that gives your components access to the state and dispatching. 
And similar to Redux Toolkit, those are now the standard pattern we teach for working with Redux in React. So we got you know, kind of like two different independent axes here. Right. But today we teach Redux Toolkit and React Redux Hooks as the standard way of rating React plus Redux apps. And both of those are much simpler to work with and use than the older style patterns. Just a quick pause here to remind you that PodRocket is brought to you by LogRocket. LogRocket can help you understand exactly how users are experiencing your digital product with session replay, error tracking, product analytics, frustration indicators, performance monitoring, UX analytics, and more. Machine learning algorithms service the most impactful issues affecting your users so you can spend your time building a better product rather than hunting through tools. Solve user-reported issues, find issues faster, and improve conversion and adoption with LogRocket. Can you tell us a little bit about specific features and then what is changing in the near future? I, I saw that we have Redux Toolkit 2.0 in, there's like a few alpha releases, right? Since the beginning of this year. Yep. And those are pinned to the Redux 4.2, whatever, to like 5.0 under the hood. Is there anything else big that's kind of motivating that change? Are there big feature sets or like library changes that are necessitating that? Or is it mainly the Redux version bump? Oh, there's a bunch of stuff going on. So yeah, let's, let me do a quick run through like what is in Redux Toolkit right now as of our 1.9 versions. Um, okay, API listing. The bread and butter of Redux Toolkit are the configure store and create slice functions. And these are what we really expect basically everyone to be using. So configure store wraps around the core libraries create store API, but it sets up good default options right away. And it makes it very simple to do. So the old style create store, you had to do like this, you know, 20 or 30 line dance to get all the configuration options right. And granted, you're only doing that once per application, but it was always annoying to have to set that stuff up yourself. Yeah. So configure store out of the box makes it really easy to combine the reducers, add the Redux thunk middleware, configure the Redux dev tools for being able to view changes in the application. And you basically just pass all these in as a couple object option style arguments. And it just does all the basic standard setup work for you. And it even adds a couple of development mode middleware that check for common mistakes like accidental mutations or non-serializable values in the store. These are all the things you would have had to set up yourself anyway. Let's just have one API that does that work by default so you don't even have to think about it. With reducers and actions and stuff, I said a minute ago that the old patterns had you writing a bunch of, you know, const add underscore to do equals quote add underscore to do, and then like an action creator function that uses that to constant, and then the reducer has a switch statement that looks at the constant, and then you have to do a bunch of spread operators to copy the state. And again, there were good reasons for all those patterns, but it was always a pain to work with. You have to write so much redundant code, and it was always so easy to accidentally mess up the immutable update operations, mutate data. So Redux Toolkit has an API called Create Slice that basically does all that work for you. So you pass in an object, you give it a string name field, the initial state for the reducer, and then an object full of what we refer to as case reducer functions. So the idea is they're supposed to handle one action similar to like a case statement in a switch. And their job is to update the state, 
when that action occurs. To-dos added, to-do completed, stuff like that. But what's really nice here is inside those reducers, you can write code that appears to mutate the existing state value. And that's because Redux Toolkit includes an amazing library called Immer inside, which wraps your data in a proxy object, tracks the mutation statements, and then converts all of that into a correct and safe immutable update. So instead of having to have five levels of nested spread operations and array concats and maps and slices, you can just say state.sum.field equals one, two, three, and it just works. And the code is simpler and it's shorter and it's easier to understand what you're trying to do and it basically makes accidental mutations pretty much impossible. And those were always the number one cause of Redux bugs. So it's just a huge win across the board. And on top of that, Create Slice will automatically generate action type strings internally, and it generates the action creator functions corresponding to each case reducer. And if you're using TypeScript, all the types get passed through. So you don't even have to think about the action type strings. You get your action creators for free, and you're writing code that just says, here's a function, mutate my state, and it all just works. Yeah, because you can export from, or whatever, from the slice, then you can just pull off the actions object, the name of those functions, and use them wherever. So it makes it super clean. Yep. So configure, store, and create slice are the two things that we really expect everybody to be using as a baseline. And the rest of it is pick and choose based on what problems you're trying to solve in the app. So there's create async thunk, which abstracts the common pattern of make an async request, dispatch a loading action beforehand, and then success or failure afterwards, and use that to track loading status, and you know, maybe show a spinner or something. So it does that work for you. You just provide a function that makes the async request and returns the result. It generates the action types and dispatches them as necessary. Again, standard pattern that everyone was doing. We just made that built in. There's a create entity adapter. So our docs had talked about this pattern of normalizing data. So you take like an array of items and convert them into an object where the IDs of each item are the key. So you can look up an item directly. And we had never had anything built in to help with that. So Create Entity Adapter gives you little pre-built reducers that automatically do your CRUD style operations. So insert all these things, add a thing, remove those things, whatever. Common things people want to do with data in the Redux store. And then there's two relatively newer additions within the last couple of years. I said earlier that these days, people are much more concerned with data fetching and caching server state than they are necessarily with managing state on the client. And so there's all these great libraries like Apollo and React Query and SWR and Urkel. And so we took inspiration from those and we built a purpose-built data fetching and caching API into Redux Toolkit. And we call it RTK Query. And so it is a data fetching and caching solution built on top of the other pieces that are included in Redux Toolkit. So you know, it uses thunks and slices and selectors and stuff inside. And the idea is that you define a set of endpoints, which could be REST-based, GraphQL, or even just like an arbitrary async function. And it automatically generates a reducer that does the caching, 
and it automatically generates React hooks that you just say, use get Pokemon query, quote, Pikachu in a component, and it automatically requests the data, inserts it into the store, selects the data in the component, and gives you like your data and is fetching fields. And it's just so much easier to work with, and it handles a lot of both simple and advanced use cases built in. So I don't have exact usage stats, but I can tell you that a lot of the questions we get these days are about using RTK query. Yeah. And that's great because it means people aren't having to write all this data fetching code themselves. Yeah, RTK query is included in RTK. So it's like you don't have separate numbers because it just always gets downloaded yep. for everybody. Yeah, cool. RTK query is part of the Redux toolkit package. It's just in nested entry points because we have both a vanilla JS version of RTK query and then the React specific version as well. And then the last piece that's in there is called the listener middleware. So people had traditionally used libraries like Saga, Redux Saga and Redux Observable for writing reactive logic. Like when this action is dispatched, go kick off this like sub process or something. Right. And they work, but they're very heavyweight conceptually and tricky to use. And so we wanted to have something built in that solved almost all the same use cases, but with a simpler API, smaller bundle size and better TypeScript support. So that came out last year and we've gotten a lot of really good feedback on it. With query, what advantages does it have over using something like SWR or React query? We've had some conversations with the React query maintainers, Tanner Lindsay and Dominic Dorfmeister, and we basically cross-endorse each other's libraries. So if you're writing like a plain React app, you should use RTK query for your data fetching. If you're using Redux in your app, you should be using RTK query for your data fetching. The point is that either way, you're getting a library that is battle-tested, that does all the work for you, and handles all the, the weird edge cases and stuff that you probably wouldn't have thought of yourself. With the listener middleware, people have always used things like sagas and observables for reactive logic, and they work, but they're too powerful. It's like you know, using a chainsaw to cut a loaf of bread or whatever weird analogy you want to use. It's, it's just too powerful, too complicated. And so we wanted to provide something that handled most of those use cases at the box, but was a lot simpler and easier to work with. Are those two domains the ones that you guys felt were used the most and that's what justifies putting them into RTK? Yeah, so like when we're debating like, is this something worth building into RTK? It's a combination of how common is this problem in the Redux ecosystem and what libraries are people writing to deal with this? What other solutions are out there? A couple examples. We get a number of folks asking us if we are going to build persistence functionality into RTK, you know, saving your state to local storage or wherever. And thus far, we've always said no, because there's already a fairly popular library called Redux Persist, which is basically the de facto standard for doing this stuff. And it's there and it works. And we don't need to reinvent that wheel. There's definitely enough people wanting to do persistence that some solution needs to exist but we don't feel the need to build that into the core ourselves. But there are some things that are probably coming in RTK 2.0, on the other hand, where we are trying to solve some of those problems in our own code. 
What a perfect segue. Yeah, so tell us what's coming in 2.0. Why, maybe to start with, why is this 2.0? Because it's a major version and every library builds up cruft and mistakes over time and you have to go back and fix those things. And that means breaking changes and major versions. We have a few different goals for 2.0. One is that we want to try to have quote unquote correct ES module common JS packaging, which is both an annoyingly nebulous and seemingly continually changing goal. Uh, being able to correctly import Redux Toolkit under Node with ES module flags turned on. Another is we want to modernize the JavaScript build output. We've always been transpiling our code, so it would work out of the box in IE 11. IE 11's dead. We want to stop supporting it, and that'll help shrink bundle sizes a little bit. Oh, nice. Another is that we have accumulated a number of APIs or options that we've deprecated, and it's time for those to go away, which is technically breaking changes. We do have a few new features we're working on. And along with that, we actually converted the Redux core library to TypeScript back in 2019. And then it sat in our master branch for three plus years and never got released. So it's time for that to actually get published. And along with that, we are making some tweaks to the types in both the core and RTK to try to be a little more slightly more correct behavior. Is that Redux like 4.2 to 5? Is TypeScript in that? Yeah, there's no meaningful functionality changes, uh, but the difference is we went from JavaScript source code with a handwritten type definitions file to TypeScript source code and generating the type definitions along with tweaks to those types. Back to RTK, I saw Alpha 1 was like, beginning of this year, now you're on five. What's that timeline looking like? What are you looking out for? What are your signals? <laughs> I don't know. When it's done, it's done. <laughs> Part of the issue is we don't have a fully defined scope of exactly what will go into 2.0 before we know it's done. I'm hoping to try to keep it somewhat constrained. It would be very easy to get caught up in a trap of, what's well, 2.0, let's throw more features and more features in there. If you think about it, most features are new. Like those can go in a minor release. We've got a couple we're putting in, partly because they're ideas that we've had and we've been working on, and they need some of the types changes and the other things we're doing right now. So they can't go in a 1.x version. But strictly speaking, they could also probably have waited until after 2.0 was out, and then we add them in like a 2.1 or a 2.2 or something. Yeah. So I don't have a hard timeline. I'm hoping, quote unquote, sooner rather than later. Um, but it would be nice if we can get this out in, I don't know, hand-waving like three, four months instead of a year. Yeah, I wasn't trying to put you on the spot. I was more just curious like how you were feeling, like getting the temperature, like stability-wise and bug reports and stuff. Like, is it feeling pretty good? Are, are devs having trouble, you know, trying to make the switch for experimentation <laughs> or is it... The first rule of developing and maintaining a library is it doesn't matter how many alphas and betas and release candidates you put out. Basically, no one is going to try it until you actually publish it live. And then everybody will install it and tell you how broken it is. Yeah. It happens every time. There have been a few folks who have tried out some of the alphas, but it's been very little feedback so far, which brings up some of the work that I've been doing myself. The whole ES module common JS thing continues to be the JavaScript community's version of the Python 2 to 3 transition. It's long, it's ongoing, and it is just an absolute painful nightmare to deal with. I've got a 
secondary browser window where I've probably got like 150 tabs on the topic squirreled away. And I've learned a ton over the last few months. And every time I make another tweak, one of the people who sort of knows what they're talking about pops up and tells me that there's something else that I'm doing wrong. Yeah. But it's been stuff like creating a small Redux toolkit example app that just does a counter to test out create slice and two different uses of RTK query, one without React and one with. Making that into you know, like a little reusable a little application, copy pasting it across multiple different projects. So create React App 4, create React App 5, Next, V, etc. And having those in our repo, installing PR built versions on every push, and testing those out to make sure that they actually compile and run properly. Mm-hmm. And then I've actually been able to reuse that across the other Redux-related repos like the core or reselect or Redux thunk so that I can test out packaging and like types changes in those repos as well and see if any changes to those libraries appears to break the applications. I also found a tool from one of the TypeScript maintainers called Are the Types Wrong? And it's primarily a website where you give it either a package name and version or you upload a tarball. And it looks at all the package export definitions and tells you, do these appear to be correct? And here's how TypeScript is interpreting them. And it'll tell you, like, here's a whole bunch of like common errors, not being able to find the types or mismatched file extensions or whatever. And if you look at the repo for that website, there's a core logic folder and the website folder. And I was able to build a CLI tool that uses the core, scans a package, prints out the same table in the command line that the website shows you, and then turn that into a GitHub action step so that I can scan the package formats every time I make a change. Um, And I'm hopeful someone can turn that into like a real GitHub action that would be reusable. But it's like, I've been going to all these extra steps just to try to make sure that I'm not accidentally screwing things up. Yeah, like you said, I feel like it's super useful to have those kinds of tools in this library space where you can kind of like have a bunch of targets and just have it run every time. Even just if it compiles is probably a pretty good test for you guys most of the time, I would imagine. So the ESM CJS thing is what I've probably spent the most time on. We're also now generating fully modern JavaScript build output syntax. So basically not transpiling any of the JavaScript code. So no more IE11, good riddance. We've upgraded the Redux cores, TypeScript types. For example, middleware used to treat the action parameter as any, and we're now treating it as unknown because it literally could be anything. It could be an action object. It could be a thunk function. It could be a promise. And so we're being stricter. And if you want to interact with it, you really need to do a type check to confirm what you think it is before you try to access a field on it. Michelle Westrate, the author of the Immer library, just put out Immer 10. This also drops a bunch of backwards compatible stuff. It drastically improves update performance. The bundle size is smaller. I was actually able to contribute an update to the build system based on a lot of the work that I'd been doing. And so the alphas now depend on Immer 10 final. So again, smaller bundle size, faster updates. It's not to love. Uh, We've killed a few different bits of deprecated options and pieces. The biggest one is that create slice dot extra reducers used to accept an object 
full of action types to listen to. And the problem is that did not give you any TS type safety. It was okay when we first came up with Redux Toolkit and everything was still plain JS, but we really want people using TypeScript instead. And so for a couple of years now, we've had this like Java style builder callback syntax. So, you know, builder.addCase.addMatcher. Mm -hmm. And that works much better with TypeScript. It's basically the same number of lines of code. So we deprecated the object syntax in 1.9 and we've removed it in the alphas for 2.0. And there's even a code mod that tries to help update your code if you want to run that. And then the other change at the moment is that we just merged an experimental new API called Combined Slices. Mm -hmm. So the Redux core has always had an API called Combine Reducers, and that's where you pass in your posts reducer, users reducer, comments reducer, and you get the top level state object reducer function. And the biggest thing here is that Redux has never had anything built in for lazy loading or code splitting of logic. There's like a copy paste recipe in our documentation. And there were a couple third party libraries people had done with this, but there was never anything built in. Because of the way combined reducers works, you have to keep around references to all the old slice reducer functions so that you can pass all of them plus the new one to combine reducers again. Mm -hmm. And then he calls store.replace reducer to swap it out. So we have a, a relatively new person who's joined our maintainers group as handles Eskimo Joe. And one of the things he built out about a year ago, maybe Lens Weber, the other primary maintainer, had put up an issue with a notional pitch for some Bay combined slices type API, and maybe it would have some support for lazily injecting slice reducers mm. into it. Mm -hmm. And so Eskimo Joe tackled that and in the space of just a few weeks was able to build out something that appears to implement what we had drafted out a while back. Mm -hmm. um, but the, the biggest thing is it allows you to pass in like the entire slice objects as parameters, and then it'll automatically combine them using the name fields as the keys of the state. Oh, cool. Yeah. Um, and then it keeps those around and the reducer that it returns actually has like a dot inject function attached to it. And so if I understand this right, you can inject more slices later and it'll add them. And you don't even have to call like store.replace reducer to make it work, I think. It also has the ability to generate some selectors that fall back to the slice's initial state if the slice has not been attached to the store yet. There was always like that timing question of, I need to inject this reducer, but also my lazy loaded components need access to that state. And like, if they try to read the state before the reducer gets injected, then that field is undefined because it hasn't been added yet. And so the idea is that like, by having the selector itself do a little bit of a fallback, you at least guarantee you're not going to see an undefined value there. So if listeners want to go check stuff out, where would you recommend they jump in? Would you guys need help testing stuff in the V2 alpha? Or would you just say, no, nah, I feel like you're getting your feet wet still? I would love to have more feedback. So the alphas are all listed on the RTK releases page. You can install whatever the latest one is by npmi at redux.js slash toolkit at alpha. 
and it will go grab whatever the latest alpha is. Overall, the alpha is stable. I mean, it's alpha because we're still making a lot of changes. Most of those changes have been around the packaging and the types so far. Like the core of the library is rock solid. And I would expect that most people could probably just update to the latest alpha and fingers crossed it ought to just work. And the most likely thing that would happen is maybe some of the TS types tweaks around like custom middleware or a few other cases like that. But I actually feel very good about the stability of these alphas as a whole. Nice. Awesome. Awesome. That's as good a note as any to end on. Thank you so much for coming on and chatting with me, Mark. It's been a pleasure. Thanks. 